Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Loving Liberty program. I'm Brian Hyde, and uh, man, there's so, so much going on. Do I start with the pandemic? Actually, I don't really want to feed any of the fear that's going on. Uh, Have you noticed how quickly the uh, coronavirus out of China has jumped into our collective consciousness? And, uh, and, you know, the the interesting thing is I saw the news break on this. So I guess it was uh, earlier this week, maybe the end of last week. Well, Chinese officials are keeping an eye on a, you know, emerging virus. And, you know, this many people have been infected. This many people are sick. This many people have died. And it's very small numbers comparatively. But uh, it made me a little bit nervous. And here's why. Because two of my children were flying home from Europe at the first of the week. And uh, I don't know. You know, it's probably because once upon a time I watched The Stand by Stephen King, you know, the made for TV uh, miniseries. And uh, my first thought is, oh. Captain Trips. (laughs) Here it comes. Now, uh, I've seen this happen before. Remember when the swine flu came through? What was it? 2009, 2010. Uh, Then SARS, of course, was another big scare. People, you know, would be in Walmart, not just the airport. You'd see them in Walmart wearing uh, these, uh, what were they, N95 masks that, uh, you know, are supposed to protect them from breathing in the infected air. So I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just I'm giving it an acknowledgement. This is on a lot of people's minds right now. And and maybe rightfully so, but I'm going to urge you, be very, very careful when you hear people reporting on this, when you see the news media talking about it, this is the time to be extremely conscious as to whether someone is trying to make you feel fearful. Because there are few things that make us more fearful than the idea of germs or, you know, viruses that are so small we can't even possibly see them, but could potentially uh, make us ill or even end our lives. That's the kind of stuff that could be used for uh, manipulating the public. And, you know, China's not helping a lot either. It sounds like they were actually arresting people who had posted, you know, stuff about this on social media, uh, you know, when it when it first started happening. I don't know. You know, I don't know if, if this is going to turn into something big or not. All I'm suggesting is Step back, take a deep breath and, uh, you know, don't don't panic. Don't allow yourself to be stampeded there. That's pretty much what I was trying to say. Sorry, I took the long way around in getting there. So among the things we're going to be covering in today's show, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, history and specifically the two different Americas in U.S. history. Uh, My friend Connor Boyack has a marvelous commentary that I think is really timely, too, because earlier this week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And it's becoming more and more common when we celebrate uh, the observance of someone famous, you know, Martin Luther King, or, I mean, we used to do George Washington's birthday, remember that? Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It's easy for us to engage in that deconstruction of whoever this famous person is. Why, you know, Martin Luther King, he was just a communist and a philanderer and blah, 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 as opposed to looking at the actual contributions that these individuals may have made. In fact, I think let's let's go ahead and start there. Connor Boyack, um, who is the president of Libertas Institute and also the founder of the Tuttle Twins series of children's books, which, by the way, is one of the most amazing tools for helping young minds understand the concepts of personal liberty, private property, the free market, and how it works. They're really great. But Connor took a few minutes to write about throwing out, they're throwing the babies out with the bathwater. 
And this is what he says. He says, do you remember the old adage about babies in bathwater? Wikipedia says it originated somewhere in Germany in the 1500s and summarizes it like this. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is an idiomatic expression for an avoidable error in which something good is eliminated while trying to get rid of something bad. In other words, uh, rejecting the favorable along with the unfavorable. Now, Connor says, on Monday, we observed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And he says, I took the opportunity to post a few quotes of his that I have particularly enjoyed. One of the first comments on the post was, giving praise to the adulterer communist, eh? And by the way, I watched this play out. I actually saw this play out on Facebook, and he's, he's absolutely right. Now, Connor says, a few months ago, we used a photo and a quote of Winston Churchill on our social media and immediately received a couple of comments about Churchill's moral failures as well as racist ideas and comments attributed to him. A post featuring H.L. Mencken with morality is doing what's right regardless of what you're told. Obedience is doing what you're told regardless of what is right emblazoned across his image garnered this remark. I don't think this is the person with whom Tuttle Twins ought to associate. If you've read all of his writing, you know why. Wow. Now, Connor says, when someone says that they, in fact, hadn't read all of Mencken's writing, but were curious why one should distance themselves from this quote, the poster replied, it can take a good deal of time to source everything and look at it in context, but I do not think the apparent misogyny and racism and atheism, or anti-theism, rather, can all be explained away. John Kennedy is reported to have said at a dinner honoring Nobel Prize winners of the Western Hemisphere, I think that this is I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent of human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. He continued, someone once said that Jefferson was a gentleman of 32 who could calculate an eclipse, survey an estate, tie an artery, plan an edifice, try a cause, break a horse and dance the minuet. But Connor says these days, if a man quotes Jefferson or praises his work, he runs the risk of being called a racist, a misogynist, and possibly a slavery sympathizer. Guilt by by quotation or something like that. So Connor says, I'd like you to do a little experiment with me. Pause for a moment and think back on the people you grew up viewing as the greats. Now think of how many of them could stand the scrutiny of being looked at through the lens of history with which we now have the luxury of viewing those who came before us. If time were devoted to reading everything that was ever said about them by friend, enemy, servant, spouse, or child, would there be evidence to prove them less admirable than you previously imagined them to be? That's a fair question, right? Now, he points out in the Tuttle Twins and the Education Vacation, the Tuttle family tours Europe and spends the day at the Colosseum. Ethan says to his father, this sign says over half a million people lost their lives fighting animals and other people in the arena. Mr. Tuttle adds, and it was built by thousands of Jewish slaves. That shows a lot of history is ugly, but we learn about it to try and be better. And Connor says, I wonder if certain people today wouldn't, if it was within their power, tear down the Colosseum and bury its bloody history and the lessons to be learned from it in the name of condemning slavery and animal cruelty. He says, imagine what we would have lost if earlier people had, upon realization that some of their leaders or history were sometimes repugnant, chosen to remove all mention of them. What would we have lost and what tragedies would we have repeated? Now, he says, I'm not saying we should simply ignore the less than admirable admirable traits of those who helped build our world. 
They don't get a, they don't have to get a pass on being jerks or Marxists or racists or philanderers simply because they also wrote the Declaration of Independence or helped defeat the Nazis or ended racial segregation. He says, what I'm saying is that the demand by some that we dismiss the entire contribution of a person because we now know that they were morally flawed or downright wrong in some areas of their lives sounds an awful lot like the thinking that leads to the banning of books or the propagandizing of history. Now, he points out he chose to base the Tuttle Twins and the search for Atlas on Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. A lot of people had their minds opened up to some really important and life-changing ideas through Rand's writing. And Connor says, I felt that those ideas were worth creating a story around. Most people haven't heard a lot of the authors whose work we've based the Tuttle Twins books on, but most people have heard of Rand and her Atlas. Now, democratic socialists and communists obviously can't stand Rand, what with all the individuality and hard work and personal responsibility she wrote about. But he says, I sometimes get responses from those who generally agree with me, but who think that basing a book upon Atlas or highlighting Rand's work was unnecessary because she ended up being such a flawed person. And he says, it's true. Ayn Rand ended up alone and broke, collecting Social Security and depending on Medicare after being diagnosed with lung cancer. Her personal life was full of heartache and betrayal, and she had some pretty strong views that can make her seem bigoted and cruel now. He says she has some views that I've never accepted and completely disagree with, but I don't believe I have to condone every single choice someone made or support every single view they espoused in order to see the value that they brought through their work. He says, I think it's good and right to search Dr. King's work for beautiful and inspiring and empowering messages. And he says, and I agree with President Kennedy about Thomas Jefferson's one in a million mind, even if I don't think that his personal life always reflected the morals that he espoused. Connor Boyack says, I believe that it's important for us to be able to find all the virtuous and good and praiseworthy ideas in as many people as we can. And he says, our reading list would be very short indeed if we reserved our sources only to those we could prove to be perfect. And he concludes by saying, I like this comment left on a Facebook thread about those who were once revered but have since fallen out of public favor. favor rather. I take it all with a grain of salt. It's too convenient to attack individuals who are not able to defend themselves. It's also silly to apply our hindsight to their worldview and expect them to have seen things our way. So there's something to think about. Most of the great people who've done great things through world history were neither angels nor were they devils. Learn from the good, reject the not so good. That seems like a better approach. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Once again, I'm going to ask you, please hold your calls for the second hour of the show. We're going to have some time to discuss in the second hour. I've got a lot of stuff I want to work through, though, in this first hour. And one of the things I wanted to share with you is a commentary from Jacob Hornberger. This one landed in my email inbox yesterday. It's titled Two Different Americas. And since we were kind of talking about historical figures before, um, I kind of want to continue on in this vein of, of history. Because I, I'm a firm believer, even though I'm not an historian or I'm not, uh, you know, any way a professor of history, but 
I believe that uh, there are valuable lessons that have to be learned. And in fact, I believe if you really want to get down to, you know, what came before us, you have to be willing to do a little bit of delving into history yourself rather than taking someone else's word for it. Textbooks are great. Original sources are better. After all, who are those textbooks quoting but original sources? You see the point, I hope. Here's what Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation has to say. He says there have been two completely different Americas in U.S. history. Let's examine 12 ways in which they differ. Number one, for more than a century after the United States came into existence, there was no income tax or IRS. What this means is people were free to keep everything they earned and decide for themselves what to do with it. Today, income taxation and the IRS are a core feature of American life. The government essentially owns everyone's income and decides how much people will be permitted to keep, much as a parent permits his children to have an allowance. Number two, no Social Security. Earlier Americans rejected the concept of mandatory charity. People were left free to decide for themselves whether to help out their parents and others. Today, Social Security is a core feature of American life. The federal government forces younger people to help out seniors by forcibly taking their money from them and giving it to seniors. Social Security is a classic example of a socialist program, one in which the government forcibly takes money from people to whom it belongs and gives it to people to whom it does not belong. There's an added uh, corollary here about, uh, you know, if, if real charity has to be voluntary for it to be charity. If it's forced, it's not charity. There's a threat somewhere saying you will either pay this or else. Number three, no Medicare and Medicaid. Americans had a free market health care system, one in which there was no government involvement. And the result was the finest health care system in the world. One in which health care prices were low and stable. Innovations were soaring. Doctors loved what they did in life. And the poor were receiving free health care services from doctors and hospitals. It was charity, in other words. Today, seniors and the poor are dependent on Medicare, another socialist program that is characterized by massive dysfunction, soaring prices, perpetual crisis, and physicians who hate what they do in life. Number four, no centrally managed economy. Americans believed that people should be free to manage their own economic activities. Today, whoever happens to be president assumes the role of centrally managing the economy, taking credit when the economy is going well, and blaming the Federal Reserve when the inevitable crashes come. Central planning, of course, is a socialist principle. Number five. In the two Americas, in the first one anyway, there was no Federal Reserve or paper money. The official money of the country consisted of gold coins and silver coins, and there was no central bank, in other words, Federal Reserve, to either inflate or debase the currency. Today, the Federal Reserve continues to destroy people's money through monetary central planning, inflation, and debasement. The official money is now Federal Reserve notes, which promise to pay nothing. Number six, very few economic regulations, including minimum wage laws. Americans favored a free enterprise economic system, one in which economic enterprise was free of government control and management. Today, economic regulation, including minimum wage laws, form a core feature of American economic life. Okay, this next one's going to sting. Number seven, no immigration controls. People believed in the right of people to freely cross borders in the pursuit of happiness. 
Today, Americans maintain an enormous apparatus that centrally plans the movements of people into the United States. Now, to enforce the system, the federal government has brought a brutal police state into existence in the American Southwest. This socialist immigration system is characterized by death, suffering, and perpetual crisis. Number eight, no drug laws. People believed that people have the right to ingest whatever they want, no matter how harmful or destructive. Today's Americans believe that it is a rightful role of government to punish people for ingesting harmful substances, such as a parent punishes a child for putting bad things into his mouth. Number nine, no national security state, including a Pentagon, military industrial complex, empire of domestic and foreign military bases, CIA, NSA, or FBI. Our ancestors used the Constitution to call into existence a governmental structure known as a limited government republic. Today, the centerpiece of American life is the national security state, along with its sordid dark side practices of state-sponsored assassinations, torture, indefinite detention, kangaroo military tribunals, and mass secret surveillance. Number 10, short and sweet, no empire, foreign intervention, or foreign interventionism, rather, or foreign wars. Today, military empire, foreign interventionism, coups, Foreign aid, alliances with dictatorial regimes, regime change operations, sanctions, embargoes, invasions, and occupations are an ongoing central part of American life. Number 11, no public schooling systems. Education was, by and large, based on free market principles. Today, Americans are required to subject their children to state-approved education. There are compulsory school attendance laws, government school teachers, government-approved textbooks, government-established curricula, and compulsory taxation to fund it all. Public schooling is another example of a socialist, centrally planned program. And finally, number 12, no gun control. Americans believed that the right to keep and bear arms is a natural, God-given right that cannot be controlled and regulated, much like such other rights as freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of religion. Today, the right to keep and bear arms is controlled, regulated, even nullified in certain areas of the country. Now, Jacob Hornberger says the 12 major differences naturally give rise to an important question. Was the abandonment of America's sound founding principles the reason for the massive chaos, crises, and dysfunction that riddle our society today? It's a fair question, and I think there's, a, there's another question that should follow on, and that is, how did we get from the America where people had this unprecedented amount of freedom to the one that we live in today? Now, I know for some people this is kind of an all-or-nothing proposition. Well, if you don't like it, you can get out. And I understand if it, if it makes you feel bad to think, you know, how could, how could you be saying these things about this, this great nation, the freest country on the face of the earth, the greatest planet on the face of the earth? Well, I wouldn't argue that at one time those were probably accurate descriptions. But we've strayed. And by we, I'm including myself because, I, man, I slogged around in that swamp of misinformation for way longer than I wish I had. But the truth is, we have given up so much. And sometimes it has been, you know, through just sheer laziness. You know, well, someone else can figure this out for us or someone else can tell us what it all means. 
You know, you can't be a free people if you're not willing to shoulder the responsibilities that come along with freedom. There is just a there is a, an inseparable relationship between responsibility and freedom. And part of it is you have to know you have to understand the principles and the practices of liberty if you expect to be a free people. And even then. There's going to be effort involved in keeping your public officials, for instance, in check, making sure that they're not cutting corners or otherwise trying to skirt the uh, limits on their power, even if it's beneficial to you. But we'll, we'll give you parks. We'll give you recreation centers. We'll give you security. All you have to do is give us the power. And unfortunately, very few people realize there's a massive trade-off in terms of what you're giving away versus what you receive in return. Freedom, unfortunately, is going to carry some risks. And a free people have to be willing to accept those risks as well as the responsibilities and the sometimes heavy lifting that comes along with it. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Again, I'm going to ask you to hold your calls for the next hour. And uh, I I just want to get through. There's a couple of more things that I have to share this hour that uh, I I want to make sure that we have time for. You've heard me talk a little bit about uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And I look, whatever you may think of Julian Assange, you may think, well, this guy, he's a he's a terrible person because he uh, set out to give the U.S. a black eye. And look, I'll just come right out and say it. I think the U.S. has a black eye for some of the things that have been done in the name of foreign policy. And, of course, Julian Assange with WikiLeaks was the one who released, uh, uh, what did they call it, collateral murder, in which uh, there was uh, information that showed uh, a couple of uh, U.S. Apache helicopter pilots killing and targeting innocent and unarmed civilians, including a Reuters uh, reporter. Uh, Man, this was what, back in uh, 2007? Anyway, it's been a while, but when this came out, it was information that the U.S. government clearly did not want to come out because it showed that what was going on in Iraq was not this, uh, you know, peaceful nation building. Oh, look what a favor we're doing for the Iraqi people. It, It showed the ugly face of what happens when you unleash military force against a population that really doesn't want to be occupied. And it was uh, it was brutal. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Lots of things have come out since we have seen a lot of backroom, dirty deals done between the leaders of various countries. And uh, suffice it to say, WikiLeaks is very good at shining a light on darkness and and showing the cockroaches that scurry around, you know, depending on the darkness to keep their acts hidden. And it's all made possible by whistleblowers within various organizations whose consciences say this isn't right. Now, it's unfortunate that the U.S. government was one of those entities that was embarrassed by truth, not fiction, but truth coming to light. And, of course, this is what prompted the U.S. government, among others, to go after Julian Assange with the vengeance that it has been doing. And by the way, Glenn Greenwald now down in Brazil facing a very similar thing. Well, we're accusing him of violating the nation's spy rules because he uh, sought information from whistleblowers or helped these whistleblowers remain, you know, uh, remain shielded from uh, official reprisal, help them cover their tracks. 
Bottom line is, there are things governments don't want us to know. You're going to love this next story. This is from Caitlin Johnstone, and the headline says, WikiLeaks editor says, U.S. is saying First Amendment doesn't apply to foreigners in the Assange case. Here's the story. WikiLeaks editor-in-chief Kristen, Kristen, I'm going to say this name wrong, Hraftison, gave a brief statement to the press after the latest court hearing for Julian Assange's extradition case in London, saying the Trump administration is arguing that the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution doesn't provide freedom or press freedom protection to foreign nationals like Assange. Raffneson said, we have now learned from submissions and affidavits presented by the United States to this court that they do not consider foreign nationals to have a First Amendment protection. Now, let that sink in for a second, Raffneson continued. At the same time, the U.S. government is chasing journalists all over the world. They claim they have extraterritorial reach. They have decided that all foreign journalists, which includes many of you here, have no protection under the First Amendment of the United States. So that goes to show the gravity of this case. This is not about Julian Assange. This is about press freedom. Now, I'm just going to point this out because it needs to be said. The First Amendment gives no one rights. It does not give rights to American citizens. It does not give rights to foreign nationals. The First Amendment is pure and simple a prohibition on the exercise of our government's power to interfere with free press, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, petition for redress. It doesn't give us any of these things. It acknowledges those rights as being pre-existing and specifically spells out that these things shall not be infringed by the U.S. government. Can you see how turned on its head this whole issue has become because of the way the U.S. government now wants to go after journalists anywhere, any place in the world? It claims the power to go after them, treat them like enemies of the state. But to say that the First Amendment doesn't apply to them, no. The First Amendment applies to you, federal government. It is a set of handcuffs on you. It's a limit of your powers. If only more people understood this and were willing to call it out for the crap that it is when we have officials saying, well, but this is how we regard this. This is how the courts have have decided to to see this. Now, Raffneson's very newsworthy claim has received almost no mainstream news coverage at all. This is one of the reasons why I'm bringing it up here today. This prosecutorial strategy would be very much in alignment with remarks made in 2017 by then-CIA Director Mike Pompeo. And Caitlin Johnstone quotes him, Julian Assange has no First Amendment freedoms. He's sitting in an embassy in London. He's not a U.S. citizen. That's what Pompeo told the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She says that, like nearly every sound which emits from Pompeo's amorphous face, was a lie. The First Amendment is not a set of special free speech privileges that the U.S. government magnanimously bestows upon a few select individuals. It's a limitation placed upon the U.S. government's ability to restrict rights that all persons everywhere are assumed to have. This is like a sex offender who's barred from living within 500 yards of a school, claiming that the school he moved in next to is exempt because it's full of immigrants who therefore aren't protected by his restriction. It's a restriction placed on the government, not a right that is given to certain people. 
And she says attorney and Future of Freedom Foundation President Jacob Hornberger explained after Pompeo's remarks, as Jefferson points out, everyone, not just American citizens, is endowed with these natural God-given rights, including life, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. This includes people who are citizens of other countries. Citizenship has nothing to do with rights that are vested in everyone by nature and God. At the risk of belaboring the obvious, that includes Julian Assange. Now, journalist Glenn Greenwald, who himself is now legally being persecuted by the same empire as Assange under an indictment, which Ravnison had in the aforementioned statement called an almost carbon copy of the indictment against Julian Assange, also denounced Pompeo's 2017 remarks. Here's what Greenwald said. The notion that WikiLeaks has no free press rights because Assange is a foreigner is both wrong and dangerous. Greenwald wrote, when I worked at The Guardian, my editors were all non-Americans. Would it therefore have been constitutionally permissible for the U.S. government to shut down that paper and imprison its editors on the ground that they enjoy no constitutional protections? Obviously not. Now, Greenwald, who is a former litigation attorney, referenced a Salon article he'd written in 2010, skillfully outlining why Senator Susan's Col- Susan Collins' attempts to spin constitutional rights as inapplicable to foreigners would be outlandish, insane, and illegal and unconstitutional to put into practice. Here's what he said. To see how false this notion is that the Constitution only applies to U.S. citizens, one need do nothing more than read the Bill of Rights. It says nothing about citizens. To the contrary, many of the provisions are simply restrictions on what the government is permitted to do. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or abridging the freedom of speech. No soldier, sh- no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. And where rights are expressly vested, they are, not, they are pointedly not vested in citizens, but rather in persons or the accused. As in, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says the U.S. Supreme Court in 2008 issued a highly publicized opinion in Bomadine versus Bush, which by itself makes clear how false is the claim that the Constitution only applies to Americans. Greenwald wrote the Bomadine court held that it was unconstitutional for the Military Commissions Act to deny habeas corpus rights to Guantanamo detainees, none of whom was an American citizen. Indeed, all the detainees were foreign nationals outside of the U.S., If the Constitution applied only to U.S. citizens, that decision would obviously be impossible. Greenwald added the principle that the Constitution applies not only to Americans, but also to foreigners was hardly invented by the court in 2008. To the contrary, the Supreme Court all the way back in 1886 explicitly held this to be the case when in Yick Wo v. Hopkins, it overturned the criminal conviction of a Chinese citizen living in California on the ground that the law in question violated his 14th Amendment rights to due process and equal protection. In doing so, the court explicitly rejected what Susan Collins and many others claim about the Constitution. Now, I don't know if that sets your hair on end or if that makes you feel like, well, who are they to tell us what the Constitution says or not? But if you don't understand the basic pecking order and that the Constitution created the federal government and not the other way around, it's going to be impossible to understand why government must abide by its limits. 
This is the kind of common knowledge all of us need to possess. are back. Once again, thanks for joining me here on Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and I'm sharing with you an article from Caitlin Johnstone about how the WikiLeaks editor says the U.S., which is going after Julian Assange, trying to extradite him from London to face espionage charges for the uh, WikiLeaks revelations that have basically shown that there's a lot of nasty stuff that was going on, courtesy of our government, that they really didn't want out there in the open. And it's it's not just scary on the part of Julian Assange, but it's a scary thing for the future of journalists anywhere in the world, because the U.S. is arguing, hey, First Amendment doesn't apply to these journalists. They don't have First Amendment rights. They're not protected under the First Amendment, which is a very bold statement. I mean, that's that's the statement of shut up and, you know, do whatever I tell you, as opposed to uh, I'm supposed to be here working to protect your God given rights or your natural rights which is the uh, whole explicit purpose for which we have government in the first place. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says, let's be clear. The Trump administration isn't just working to establish a legal precedent, which will be used to demolish press freedoms around the world. It's also working to change how the U.S. Constitution operates on a very fundamental level. And she asks this question, does that seem like a good time to fight against this to you? She says, because it sure as hell seems like that to me. Raffneson also said in the same statement that Assange's extradition trial is going to be split into two separate dates, the first one on February 24th for one week and then reconvening again for three weeks starting May 18th. And she says, if you care about freedom of virtually any sort, I highly recommend paying very, very close attention. And I would second those thoughts. I mean, how important is it to... to really know what's going on. I understand, you know, comfortable, comfortable lies are a lot easier for people to swallow than uh, uncomfortable truths. And actually, in the next hour, I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, how, you know, when it, when it comes to writers, particularly, writers have to take make a choice between saying what they want to say or avoiding enraging their readers. In other words, they, they kind of have to choose. Do they, do they play to the crowd or do they write as individuals? And it's kind of an interesting conundrum because, you know, your success is, well, how big is your following? Are there people defending you from your detractors? Are there people who would stand up for you and say, yes, I'm a part of Brian's tribe? And if not, you know, who are you? That's if you're lucky enough to actually be noticed. I mean, you know, the, the worst fate in, in writing is to simply be ignored. Anyway, it, it leads to kind of a fascinating uh, uh, conundrum of if you really want to tell the truth, you know, you have to choose. Do I want to tell the truth bad enough to risk offending people? And I'll admit that is something I have struggled with and continue to struggle with even now, you know, throughout my uh, my long and storied career of being behind the microphone and pecking away behind the keyboard. 
So stick around. I hope you'll join me in the next hour. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I want to share something with you here that uh, this I'm, I'm almost a little bit hesitant, although I'm not going to use bad language, but this is a wonderful essay by Ira Katz. It's called Expletive Included, and it points to how we are removing beauty from our culture by allowing profanity to become normalized. Ira Katz says, in my youth, one of the biggest political events was the Watergate scandal that included the release of tapes of Oval Office conversations. A surprising and appalling aspect of President Nixon's conversation was his use of foul language, so much so that it was edited from the public transcripts with the words expletive deleted. Now, of course, the brilliant comedian George Carlin had a classic skit during this period about the seven words you cannot say on television. Now, Carlin was more than funny, but also extraordinarily astute. So it was years and years later and a bit of a shock to me, he says, when I first heard an expletive on live television when Hall of Fame outfielder Andre Dawson said the S word in a postgame interview. Must have been the late 80s or early 90s. And he says, years ago, I spent a lovely sojourn on the northwest coast of Ireland in the town called Sligo. On the train back to Dublin, I was sitting with two university students returning to their campus. Now, these were engineering students, and I was an engineering professor, so we had a common subject to discuss. They were both bright and articulate, and I remember enjoying the conversation very much. But he says, they paused in virtually every sentence as a valley girl would use the word like to interject the F word. And he says the word did not have any meaning to them, but to me it was still quite astonishing. Several years ago, he read the book, I Know This Much Is True, by Wally Lamb on the suggestion of friends. And then he wrote to them about his opinion of the book that included this passage. He said, aesthetically, I think this was an ugly book full of ugly language. The F word was on almost every page. And he says, I've recently had scatological words in my thoughts that I hope will soon pass. Was it necessary to be dragged through the muck? For 700 to 800 pages. He says, now I find expletives included everywhere, all the time, in almost all settings. I've even heard the S word from very devout and conservative Christians on YouTube podcasts. He says, my 12 year old daughter will say merde, the French word for the S word, on occasion, which doesn't sound too bad to my ears, but he says she'll also sing along with popular music that does, that can include words like the B word or the F word. In fact, he says, I just had a text message from my wife with the S word when our car didn't pass inspection. An anonymous correspondent writing in regard to his recent essay on Roman Polanski says, you should just shut your effing pedophile enabling mouth. Wow. Ira Katz says, I don't think I'm being a prude about this. Up to my middle age, he says, I played sports constantly and on all playing fields and locker rooms, expletives were normal but not in general conversation, let alone more formal settings. In fact, he says, I'm surprised at how sensitive my ear is to these words. Now, Ira Katz says, I suppose there are many complex reasons why such words rather have become taboo due to social, physiological, psychological, and religious reasons. He says, the old taboos have been wiped away, but we are not left totally free to express ourselves however we would like or however we would like to, because there are new political taboos and they're so strict. We have to watch our words on all occasions, except perhaps with our closest friends. He says, I wonder how Mr. Carlin would create comedy based on today's political, political correctness, but he doesn't make any connection between the new taboos and the subversion of the old taboos. So he says, do the use of swear words or gross mutts, big words in French really matter? 
Perhaps this essay is just an old guy ranting, but he says the late Roger Scruton touches on what is lost when beauty and art, but also language, is abandoned. This he does in his documentary, Why Beauty Matters. In the hierarchy of problems in the world, Ira Katz says the use of foul language is not near the top, but he says, I can't help but feel a slight psychological pain whenever I hear these words in a setting I find inappropriate. Perhaps this language has been and continues to be a portent of the downward spiral of our culture. Now, I'm sorry if this is, if this is you know, bringing up something that's making you uncomfortable. It's probably a good thing. But I think it's a fair question. You know, do you hear profanity? I'll, I'll tell you where I'm seeing profanity being used more and more in, in mainstream culture is in politics. Holy cow, some of the filth that comes out of the mouths of some of the elected representatives, people who are supposed to be observing decorum. I mean, come on, you know, you're, you are in the public spotlight. You are there representing people. And, and you're, you, you kiss your mother with that mouth? Wow. You know, it wasn't so many years ago there was a, a musical performer who came to perform in St. George, Utah. And it was a big deal because uh, this, this performer, I'm not going to give him props, He's, he's big enough he can stand on his own two feet. But at the time, he was just an emerging performer. And somehow, Dixie State College, as it was at the time, booked him to come and do a concert. And it was right after they had booked him, this guy had his breakthrough and became absolutely huge. Bigger than life. He was performing on Saturday Night Live, sold out concerts all over the country. And sure enough, he came to St. George and... One of the things that was stipulated in the contract that brought him there was, look, because this is an outdoor concert and there were neighborhoods all around there, uh, don't be using profanity. Well, that was considered a challenge. And the F-bomb flew with abandon. It was it was the shock and awe F-bomb campaign that uh, that this artist unleashed. How bad was it? It was bad enough that a friend of mine who lives just, you know, one street over from the, the field in the stadium where they were holding this concert he said they, they couldn't even escape from it in their home. And they had small children. And he says, finally, it got so bad, my wife and I had to load the kids in the minivan and go on a drive. We had to leave town, literally, to avoid the profanity. And the thing that was so curious was the reaction of people. Well, come on, it's about time somebody dragged this community into the 20th century. You people, you know, how are you to, to you know, be clinging to these old ways? As if... That vulgarity somehow was supposed to add value to their lives. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not trying to sound elitist here, but <sighs> vulgarity to me is something reserved for the privilege or for the uh, primitive, rather. You know, savages sitting around a campfire, you know, beating on drums made from the skulls of the people they just ate. That's what I would expect it to fit in well with. Not with civilized people or with people who are looking for beauty in their lives. 